0: Welcome to episode 140. We're talking about nonprofit state filing compliance. Yes, it's a mouthful. Yes, it may be a little dry. However, this is the crash course and what you need to know from an expert who wrote the book. This is Using the Whole Whale, a podcast that brings you stories of data and technology in the nonprofit world. My name is George Weiner, your host and the chief whaler of wholewhale.com. Thanks for joining us. Today on the podcast, we have none other than Ron Barrett, the VP of Nonprofit Services at Cogency Global. He is also the author of the page-turning, riveting novel, not a novel, fact. It is Nonprofit Fundraising Registration, NOLO's 50-State Guide. 50-state digital guide. I almost nailed it, Ron. I was pretty close. How's it going, man?
1: Good, good. Thank you, George. I appreciate that introduction.
0: <laughs> I bumbled my way through it fairly well. Uh, but Ron, why don't you uh, explain what it is at the core of, uh, of your work uh, with regard to nonprofit services?
1: Thanks, George. I appreciate that. Basically, uh, it's to keep the mission The focus on a nonprofit's mission, there's a lot of work that happens in the background as it relates to fundraising and corporate matters. And so the the state registration filings, when a charity is soliciting across state lines, whether they're doing it in a more traditional way, like direct mail or uh, phone calls, or if they're, you know, entering into – various digital media campaigns and online campaigns, email campaigns, so so online fundraising. um, It can trigger registration requirements nationwide. And so for a lot of charities, smaller ones, they might not have to worry too much about it, maybe just in their home state. But for larger ones or ones that are more concerned with compliance and complying with the state rules, it can get to be quite a distraction to have to file in multiple states uh, on multiple systems, whether it be online or on paper, uh, and it could just, just like I say, it can be a distraction to a nonprofit's mission. And so we help keep the focus on their mission by taking this piece of compliance off of their plate.
0: The reason I, I brought you on is because we often talk about digital fundraising on our podcast and how to grow it and scale it. And we're, for the most part, usually talking to organizations that are operating with, uh, call it, you know, under $5 million thereabouts, uh thereabouts in, in annual revenue. However, this idea that you're like, wait a minute, I could accidentally... Be incurred fees, or get a note from you know Delaware or Idaho or Illinois, and be like, hey, you uh, you've been raising money here, and quite a bit. Uh, here's this like fee that comes up. Is that mostly how people discover the fact that there's like state by state compliance?
1: Yeah, a lot of times. I mean, sometimes their CPA or an attorney might inform them of it. The 990 went through a series of changes um, since the Pension Protection Act in 06, and they started actually asking questions about fundraising activities and added Schedule G to the 990. Attorneys or uh, CPAs that are preparing these forms in turn need to be asking their clients about these fundraising activities, and oftentimes it'll come up then. And so then they'll realize, okay, well, we might have to register at least in our home state if, if it's required in our home state because it's not required in every state but then it, we might have to in other states too maybe neighboring states if we have uh, an event somewhere some uh, organizations that are applying for grants um, the, the, the foundation or, 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 or state agency that is making the grant in their application process might ask are you registered uh, in our state to solicit And so there's a variety of ways that they can come to know about the registration requirement. Um, Fortunately, enforcement is not real high in most states. uh, And typically you won't get a letter or notice what I call a nasty gram from a state asking you to register um so that's that's the one good thing but that does happen from time to time um another triggering event might be that say you're starting to work with um, a fundraiser um or maybe you're going to enter into like a charitable sales promotion it's also known as a a commercial co-venture agreement and you're working with a for-profit that wants to promote your charity um it'll come up then too so professional fundraisers is definitely something you know if they're registered They're going to ask questions about your organization if you're registered. Um, And and there are some donors out there that are doing their due diligence and might contact the state just to see that you're a reputable organization. We see like in Florida, for example, um, after a hurricane uh, comes through, a lot of fraudulent charities popping up. And so... The state regulators down there are really sensitive to uh, protecting their constituents in terms of fraud. And so they do let people know. And and, and I've seen it in um, articles and press releases and uh, and uh, online like news announcements, et cetera, you know, about these fraudulent charities and that, you know, they encourage the donors to contact them when they're not sure if the organization that is is soliciting them is a legitimate organization. And so what the state can do is check to see if they're registered and if they're not, that in Florida will automatically generate uh, a letter to the organization. It actually generates a fine if they're not registered. And so Florida's, I mentioned Florida specifically though, because they're one of the few states that does have a high enforcement profile and so I usually do warn folks that look, if you're soliciting in Florida, you might wanna pay a little more attention in that state as opposed to others. And I, and I, I do kind of actively give the, uh, people strategies or advice on how to uh, minimize where they register based on what their kind of fundraising profile might look like in a state. If it's really minimal uh, and, and it's minimum contacts or de minimis contacts in a state, Say you have an online fundraising campaign or a Donate Now button on your website and you start receiving donations from Alaska, but it's minimal. It's like maybe a 100 bucks a year. Do you really want to register in that state for that $100? If I were running the organization, the answer is no. Other people that are really hypersensitive to compliance issues for one reason or another might say yes. Um, But I do encourage folks to kind of take a, a bit of a strategic approach to it when analyzing it. It's like kind of like um, I liken it to uh, how I drive, which is I don't obey the speed limit. Uh, I, I don't go. You monster. Miles. Yeah, I know. I break the law. I go 60, I go 65. I haven't had a moving violation in 25 years, but I'm, I'm willing to take the risk. But I know that, it, okay, well, if, it, if I keep it reasonable, you know, 60, 65. And, and even if I do get stopped, you know the the officer might run my uh, driving record and see that it's clean and just give me a warning. And so, how I relate that to fundraising online or digitally is is, is that enforcement is low. And so, if your contacts are minimal in certain states, or your say your uh, donations coming in from certain states are minimal, say you don't have any events in the states, or you don't have any specific nexus, so to speak, with the state. I argue, you know, what's it's a minimal risk as well. And so why register? Whereas, you know, say you are really active in a state and you have an event there and maybe it's advertised on radio or TV or in some other way, maybe uh, some digital marketing, et cetera. And say you have a lot of money coming in, a lot of donations coming in from that state. I would argue then it behooves you, it's in your best interest to register in that case. Um, and then, again, like I, I got back to originally saying about grants and et cetera, if you're going after a grant, the uh, grantor might not say it's required in their state, but it doesn't mean that they're not doing their due diligence on their side. They're going to check that you're a legitimate 501 c 3 They might check to see that you're in good standing on the corporate side, and they might even check to see if you're registered. And it may not be a disqualifying event that you're not registered. But say it comes down to two organizations that they're thinking about awarding a grant to. One's registered in their state and the other isn't. They might, you know, go towards the one that's uh, paying a little more attention to the compliance uh, requirements.
0: Yeah, smoke and Um,
1: fire kind of signal, maybe. Yeah, exactly. So it it really uh, kind of depends on the situation um, for for the charity. But I usually say, you know, don't over-register.
0: And it's time to feed the whales with a quick ad. Did you know that 83% of the people on average, according to MNR, that go to your donate page do not give? Check your doctor. Results may vary, but people leave your donate page at a staggering level. Getlighthouse.io allows you to create a list of emails that went to that donate page but didn't necessarily give, allowing you to send a note, a follow-up saying, hey, how can I help you give? It connects to Google Analytics and MailChimp. To add this functionality to your existing site, go check it out at getlighthouse.io. And back to our show. It's interesting because you mentioned, as far as benchmarks, uh, I heard that like, all right, the hundred-dollar donor in Alaska—no offense, Alaska—we're gonna say like that's totally fine. You're well within the speed limit. What thresholds? Since it seems like uh, Florida will give us the biggest slap on the wrist here for uh, for you know fees and fines, one how much is that threshold? What is the speed limit for amount raised in a given state? And two, what is the range of fine?
1: So I'll start with New York. And the reason is because New York statute is is unique. Um, They have a $25,000 threshold such that uh, until you hit that threshold, you don't need to register in New York. And what's unique about New York? New York is that you have that to say
0: "unique New York" three times, past
1: now. I know, unique New York. It is difficult.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm so happy that came up naturally I, in conversation.
1: I know, gotta love that alliteration. Um, but uh, what's unique about New York is—I'll add about in there—is that it's specific to New York donors. So, in other words. 25,000 in donations from New York donors. And those donors could be individuals, corporations, other nonprofits, government agencies, etc. But they all have to be in New York and making those donations to your organization. Now, there are a lot of other dollar threshold limits in other states, but none of them are like New York in that the threshold is not specific to the state. It's specific to all donations from all sources from all states. Uh, And once you go over that threshold, you then are supposed to register if you're soliciting in that state. And those thresholds can be as low as ten thousand, as high as fifty thousand. But again, it's as a whole as an organization. Now, there are a couple of exceptions to that. If, for example, you're just doing online fundraising, Mississippi and Colorado um, have higher thresholds. Um, It's I believe it's twenty five thousand. Uh, And fifty thousand. I have to double check those numbers, Um, but the point is, is is that if your only type of solicitation in Mississippi and Colorado is online, then it is specific to those state donors. And so, and it's twenty five thousand. I I know for sure in. Uh, one of them, uh, but I'll have to double check. If anyone needs that, that uh, those specific numbers, I, I, I welcome them to reach out to me, and I'll, I'll provide my contact info later. But so those are the state thresholds uh, to consider. Uh, the other thing is 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 that you really have to kind of determine it yourself for what's what's comfortable for you. What the law says is, is that. Once you go over any monetary threshold, if you're soliciting in our state, you need to register. That's the black and white letter of the law. But the gray world that we live in, the you know I don't drive 55 world that we live in, um, might be that you know for one charity, um, okay, you know, two thousand, you know, just throwing out a number, you know, that's a good amount of money coming in, or maybe you say a um, hundred donations of twenty five dollars or more. But it's really kind of subjective. It's really what you feel comfortable with in terms of taking a risk. Some organizations might set that, peg that number higher. Some might peg it lower just because of their, um, how how they feel about compliance. Um, So
0: what do the fee fee numbers look like if I'm doing this cost-benefit analysis? Like, what am I going to be dinged with?
1: Yeah, so like, there are 38 states that require registration, generally speaking. And if you were to register in all thirty-eight states, depending on what your revenue and uh, contribute your, your what your revenue look like or what your contributions in terms of donations look like, because the sixteen of the states vary the fee based on your revenue or contributions. Typically, you'd mention a five million dollar type organization um, is looking at somewhere in the range of three to four thousand dollars in state filing fees every year. Um, if you're, you know. Subbing this work out to an organization that specializes in these filings and, and filing them every year, you're looking at another five to six thousand a year, uh, depending on how many states you're in. So, All right, so now let's cross amount. that with
0: how much? What is the what is the damage if I get, let's say, uh, a common fine amount?
1: Usually, it's pretty low. We're talking, uh, you know, in in Florida, it, it's a little bit higher. It's five hundred dollars. If they see that you're soliciting while unregistered, they immediately send you a notice, a fine of $500, and they open an administrative proceeding against your organization. And you have two options, really. One is to pay the fine and register, or you appear for an administrative hearing. So most people, when they get that nasty gram, they just pay the $500 fine and then register in Florida. But that's really the the most egregious um, enforcement type scenario when you're not registered and soliciting an estate. It can be more uh, onerous if you are registered and then let a registration lapse. So I usually do f- tell folks, be careful about where you do register, because once you do register...
0: Once you're on the well, trolley, you got to, go you gotta to go. stay on the
1: trolley. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You have an ongoing obligation to keep it in a good standing, and if you don't, many other states can uh, issue much harsher uh, penalties in the thousands of dollars. Uh, it's not uncommon in, uh, say, South Carolina or Mississippi for a fine to go uh, up to $2,000. So I I do warn folks that once you do make a commitment to register in a state, that you make sure that you file uh, uh, annually um, to make sure it stays current. Most states have a minimal type of uh, either a fine or no fine at all. Sometimes it's just a letter saying, hey, we understand you're uh, soliciting in our state. Uh, If that's true, please register. You do have to respond, uh, but sometimes that's all it is. It's just a letter, in which case, if you are soliciting, then you you should register uh, when you get one of those letters. If you're not, then you respond, uh, no, we're not soliciting in your state, so we won't be registering.
0: So with regard to Facebook fundraising, it seems like a Wild West. You know, soliciting is just meaning that, like, look, are you getting money from the humans in that state? Uh, and people are raising tons of money in some cases. Uh, and it's, you know, countrywide on Facebook. Uh, how, does that factor in as well um, when the states are looking at who's giving and how that's flowing?
1: So, yes. And no, they don't have any way to really track it, Um, and sometimes the charity doesn't have any way to track it, Um, and so it makes it very difficult, and describing it as the Wild West is really accurate, because... What you're dealing with here are 21st century fundraising methods trying to fit into statutes that were written in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And so there's a major disconnect. In the 90s, the states got together and tried to address this through a document they created called the Charleston Principles. Uh, which addressed, the, you know, hey, there's the, this thing called the Internet, and it's a big disruptor. And how do we deal with this and people that are using it to fundraise online? And so they tried to address that question. And what it really comes down to is, is, is that, as far as the Charleston principles are concerned, is, is, is that if the donations are substantial and ongoing, then you should register in a state But what's unique with Facebook and this kind of peer-to-peer fundraising model is that the organizations that are doing this or supporting this or the individuals that are doing it on behalf of those organizations, they don't know where the donations are coming from. They don't have any way to know that it's this state or that. And so uh, it's really hard to make a determination on where to register unless you do know where they're coming from. If you do know where they're coming from, then you should be keeping track of it by state. And then look at the number of donations and the dollar amount of donations. And if those start to hit the thresholds that make you feel a little bit uncomfortable about not being registered, then you might want to register in those states. But if you don't know where they're coming from, then uh, you really don't have uh, a way to know where you need to register.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, I didn't think that would be the answer. I thought there would be some sort of like weird reporting that was maybe going on on the back end. But uh, I'm glad I asked that question. Uh, All right, Ron, I'm going to do a brutal summarization um, of what I've heard. Uh, It sounds like if we are a small nonprofit, home state probably makes sense. Any big grantee or funders that state probably makes sense. Once you get on the trolley, stay on the trolley. And frankly, it's easier, it seems, to ask for forgiveness, deal with a fine or a slap on the wrist, and wrist, and then, uh, and then deal with the problem. So ignore it until it turns into a uh, a bond, bef- just before it turns into the full conflagration.
1: That's a good summary. Uh, All right. Yeah, it's fair. It's a fair summary too.
0: Uh, but I like that you added all of all of the flavor and flair uh, that add- nonprofit compliance brings.
1: Yeah, I might add one other component to it that we haven't talked about yet. And that is your people, your volunteers, your board, your officers, uh, your interested parties, your interested persons that are, are working with your organization Um I'll give you an example, a judge came to me and she had just uh, agreed to serve on the board of directors of uh, about a $5 million organization and they had some pretty high profile public events in about a dozen states that they advertised on radio and TV. And she said, she knew a little bit about the law, being a judge, and so she said to the the board that, look, if I'm going to serve, I'm going to need you to register to solicit in these 12 states because I don't want anything to reflect negatively on me or my character. I'm a publicly elected official. If anything goes wrong, if some news story comes out about us not complying with the law, it's going to reflect negatively on me, and so I want to make sure that I register. And so. I would just say, take a look at like the people on your board, you know, are there any elected officials? Are there any high profile officials, any kind of like celebrities, anyone that might be out there soliciting on your behalf who you might, you know, cause them a little bit of consternation or embarrassment down the road. So think about the people that um, are working with your organization and that could even extend out to like volunteers. Uh so if they're in if they're kind of far flung and across the nation you might consider registering in the state where they're located depending on uh who these people are.
0: Yeah, great extra point. All right, Ron, we're moving into the rapid fire round. Please keep your responses to uh, you know, 30 seconds thereabouts. What is one tech tool or website that you or your organization has started using in the last year?
1: Oh you know, uh, Ring Central. Um, it's a video conferencing phone system. Uh, I, I don't know if you heard of it or not, but it's, it's a pretty powerful uh, system. Uh, we rolled it out across um, 300 desktops, uh, and the video conferencing is, is phenomenal. Uh, the capabilities for bringing up six, seven different videos all at the same time.
0: All right, what tech issues are you battling with?
1: Well, right now, uh, I'm I'm battling with trying to come up with a a, a new online tool that will allow certain types of nonprofits to figure out, one, whether or not they need to register or if they need to file for an exemption. One of the things that we didn't cover was exemptions uh, from registration. So certain types of organizations like universities and colleges, educational foundations, hospitals, uh, houses of worship, so I think like churches and synagogues, etc., are widely exempt, but a lot of times they don't realize that they still have a registration requirement in maybe a few states, or maybe they're exempt, but they don't realize that they have a, an exemption filing requirement, which is usually a one time thing. And so, this tool that I'm trying to build uh, is a tool that's is going to ask about four or five questions and then give you a kind of like a, a, um, a chart of where you would, based on the answers to those questions, of where you would, whether or not you're required to register, where you would be required to register, and where you'd be required to file for an exemption. And so something that I'm personally struggling with right now because I'm trying to create it.
0: What is coming in the next year that has you the most excited?
1: There's a portal being built um that they have really high aspirations to create an online filing portal for charitable registration such that you enter your information once and then the portal parses out where that information goes where the documents you've uploaded goes and where the fees you've paid go unfortunately there's only two states that are on the portal um, and you know there's 38 that require registration and so and it's been moving along slowly for many years, but um, I'm curious to find out in Tennessee next month is the NAGNASCO annual conference, which is the National Association of Attorneys General and the National Association of State Charities Officials are going to get together and uh, give us an update on this portal.
0: That sounds like quite the hootenanny.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is. And
0: by the way, I'm pretty sure our audience knew that acronym, but we appreciate you spelling it out.
1: Yeah, I especially like the nag part of it.
0: (laughs) Talk about a mistake. Talk about a mistake uh, that you made earlier in your career that shapes the way you do things now.
1: I was working with a company uh, as a partner called, uh, well, I won't name the company just for uh, confidentiality reasons, but was working with a company that was building a similar portal to the one I just described. And we had entered into a partnership with them such that we would use that portal to help serve our clients. Um, But what happened was that there was a little bit of a disconnect between uh, operations and the actual tool itself and how we currently handled the registration filings. And it turned out that our systems that we had in place um, were – more efficient than the tool itself. And so I guess what would be required is, is, is that, you know, take a closer look at that, that the actual functionality um, and, and the workflow process of a tool like that. It may sound great on paper and conceptually and in terms of marketing, but in reality, in terms of the workflow, just make sure that they're really compatible uh, and that it, there's an operations gain to be had.
0: Do you believe nonprofits can successfully go out of business?
1: Yes, definitely, and I think some should, and in cases I think many should. Uh, there's an, Some people make an argument that there are too many nonprofits. There's over a million 501c3s in the United States, which I think is great, and it reflects our culture, our culture of wanting to give and wanting to help, and wanting to help all the way down to the local level. But when you have um, a lot of overlapping Administrative expenses, et cetera, in certain areas, whether it be locally or regionally or nationally, a case could be made that we have too many nonprofits and that uh, maybe some consolidation might be good for. The, the constituents of nonprofits. So, yeah, I think sometimes that can be the case, where especially if they're going out via a merger with another organization that has a similar mission, that where the two of them combined can do so much more work, better, at, at more efficiently, and at a lower cost point, you know, in, in the marketplace, and thereby, you know, serve their 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 uh, nonprofit mission in, in a in a better way.
0: If I were to throw you in the hot tub time machine back to the beginning of your work at Cogency Global, what advice would you give your younger self?
1: Don't procrastinate. Um, so and, and I'm still guilty of it, but I'm getting better and uh, meet your deadlines. Uh, stay Stay on top of those because those are important. And so I'm doing much better on both fronts, but uh, obviously uh, no one's perfect. Uh, so procrastinate less and, and thereby make those deadlines.
0: What is following up on that? What is something you think you or your organization should stop doing?
1: Over-promising. I, I think one of the things that um, on the sales side, folks, um, you know, want to get the sale. And so you have to be realistic with the clients, and we are. It's just that um, sometimes in the client's mind, they they, they think, oh, this is going to be great to get this off my plate. I'm not going to have to do anything going forward because I'm paying someone to do this. But the reality is it doesn't all go away. There's still some responsibility on their side. And so actually I'm something that I'm working on right now to uh, communicate more clearly with our clients and with prospects that – you know, that we do take um, probably 80, 90% of the work off off of your plate, there is still some left there that you have to deal with. And you still have certain obligations that you have to meet. And so I'm creating some resources, an infographic and a couple of FAQs about that just to communicate more clearly exactly what it is that we do, what our role is versus what remains on your plate for your role. If
0: I gave you a Harry Potter style wand to wave across the industry, what would it do?
1: Uh, we get that portal built.
0: <laughs> I, I was so sure you, you know. So say, I was like, this guy knows what he wants with that wand.
1: <laughs> I mean, it would help us uh, to do what we do for our nonprofit clients, but it, it, to be honest, it would also take, it would crater uh, that product line. Um, so, but you know, we're a pretty diversified company. We have uh, 14 offices in the U.S. and two internationally with over 300 employees. And so we, we're developing new products and services all the time. But it just seems so absurd that there's 38 different filing systems, some of them online, some of them by paper, some you email. It, it's just absurd. It's 38 different fees, 38 different forms or online filing systems. Um, and the requirements vary. Even though they're similar from state to state, they do vary. And uh, the due dates are all different. It's all over the map. Um you know, you throw in extensions and extension filings, which are also different from state to state. It's just a quagmire. And uh, so that portal would be such a blessing to charities and nonprofits. And one of the things I said early on is, is, is that we want to help charities keep the focus on their mission. And so we, meet, we mean that and uh, we live that. And so that would be a great tool. We, we tried to assist in developing that tool, but it, 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 it didn't happen uh, with, with what I'd mentioned earlier. Uh, but so maybe um, maybe uh, it, it can get built and, uh, you know, can provide a lot of relief to a lot of charities and allow them to more easily be compliant with fundraising uh, registration requirements.
0: How did you get started in the nonprofit service world?
1: My company was acquired in 2008 by Cogency Global. Uh, I I had a a small company in Washington, D.C., and it was acquired. And I was more on the operations and management side at the time. I wanted to get more into the sales, marketing, and product development side. And one of the uh, product lines uh, that was kind of up for grabs was nonprofit uh, services, and I had, always had kind of had an interest in learning more about nonprofits and what they need, and so I kind of was voluntold or volunteered uh, to take that on. And so since 2010, I've been working really closely with developing services for nonprofits and working with uh, nonprofits ex- exclusively.
0: Uh, what advice would you give college grads currently looking to enter the, the nonprofit service world, social impact sector?
1: You know, it's, some of the younger, I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, younger folks and, you know, digitally savvy folks and people who may not connect as well on a personal level as well as they'd like to. Uh, in terms of, you know, just daily communication, face to face, you know, I have, two teenage girls who are gonna be off to college soon. And, you know, one of them's horrified to pick up a phone and call somebody. Uh, And so I'd say to be cognizant of those, like kind of interpersonal skills with people, people skills, being able to speak and communicate. Uh, Toastmasters, at some point in their life, they're gonna hear about Toastmasters. And so I think the sooner they feel comfortable with public speaking, the better for them. Because it's going to help them uh, in every aspect of their life, whether it be work or interpersonal relationships, you know, on the personal side, et cetera. So I'd say, you know, focus on those people skills, Um, learn how to be able to be conversant and comfortable uh, talking to folks.
0: What advice did your parents give you early on in your career that you either followed or did not follow?
1: I guess it would be something that uh, I, first of all, I always followed my parents uh, advice. I have to do that. I have to honor my parents. Um, I, I think, you know, the customer comes first and the customer is always right. That kind of an attitude towards them and that, and it's not to say that the customer is in, infallible or that sometimes you might not run across the customer that you need to fire. Um, that happens. So I've, fired several customers, uh, in, in various roles in my career, but I always take a customer first attitude and approach and that they're, that they're right. And to give them the benefit of the doubt. Um, now that doesn't mean that they can walk all over you and, and be rude and, uh, and be punishing towards you. But if you come from that perspective and you're respectful towards them in that way. Uh, I think you're going to, um, even in bad situations, come out on top and, and come out ahead.
0: Ron, thank you so much for taking the time today. Final final hardball here. Uh, how do people find you? How do people help you?
1: So Cogency Global, um, our website is www.cogencyglobal.com. Cogency C-O-G-E-N-C-Y. And then my website address or my email address is uh, rbarrett, B-A-R-R-E-T-T, at cogencyglobal.com. So check out our website. um, Check out our blog. There's a lot of interesting articles for nonprofits that I've written over the years. uh, And then contact me by email.
0: Well, thank you for for sharing the nuances of uh, such a funny nuance in our state state federation here of compliance. It's... uh, You know, uh, it can be dry, but I think you, you brought some life to it, and it's important to know just enough to be dangerous, and I think our audience is dangerously equipped right now, so thanks, Ron.
1: Thank you so much, George. You have a great day.
0: This has been Using the Whole Whale. For more resources on today's show, please visit wholewhale.com podcast. And consider following us on Twitter at Whole Whale. And thanks for joining us.